Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. This is Eric Schlein, and you are listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where I discuss value investing, rational analysis, and I break down the processes, principles, and mental models of business owners and managers. Before we get started, I just want to say that this episode is brought to you by Ticker.com, T-I-K-R.com. Ticker is focused on bringing institutional quality investment research tools to the individual investor. This is a product that I personally use myself. I use it for a lot of my research. What's awesome about it, it's powered by S&P Global Capital IQ. It has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financials, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership, transcripts, news, filings. Especially what I love about it is I will read all the conference call transcripts on it. And then I will also read, let's say a company does a presentation, like a microcap conference. I'll get the transcript from that too, which is awesome. And then I'll be able to look at things for 15 years ago and actually compare valuations from you know the last 15 years, look at the numbers. It's so awesome. And you can get the free beta today. Uh, you can use my code, uh, ticker.com, so T-I-K-R.com slash intelligent. If you're in the car and you forget about it, totally cool. Uh, a lot of value investors are using this. So one of your value investor friends probably uses it and they could send you an invite code, worst case. So that's ticker.com. I personally asked them to sponsor the show. And then the other sponsor we have today is uh, Podbean, which Podbean is actually my personal podcast host that I use for the Intelligent Investing Podcast. They're probably the easiest way to create your own podcast professionally. As I said, I use it to host my own show. And then even for my new podcast, the Eric Schlein Podcast. So download the free Podbean podcast app today. Start, record, and publish your very own podcast in minutes. We need more awesome value investing podcasts out there. So if you have a Great idea for a financial podcast. All for it. Check out Podbean. They also provide everything you need to run your own podcast, record, publish episodes directly from the phone on your app. You can also do live podcasts, which are pretty cool. I think they're the only company that gives you the ability to do that. So that's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N podcast app. Check it out. So without ado, woo, without ado, Andrew Sather, welcome to the show. Hey, what's up? Welcome there? back, really. Welcome back. back. Yeah. yeah, for sure. For sure. Good to be back. So we've been doing these like podcast trades and they've been, they've been a lot of fun. So I'm um, glad to have you back. I wanted to talk about banks, the banking industry with low interest rates. It's just been such a weird time for this industry. And, and, and I wanted to bring you on. I thought you had some you know, interesting uh, insights on it. I know you do stuff with your newsletter that we're not going to talk about because that's for paid subscribers only. But from what you could talk about publicly, I'd love to hear your, your take on, on what's going on. Well, it's been wild. The big narrative for 2020 is we have and going into 2021, I think you see it in the crypto markets, how so many of these different coins have just shot through the roof. And so a lot of that's based on these fears of too much cash in the system. And so if you look at the financial results for these banks for quarter one, and it really doesn't matter which bank you're looking at, they've seen huge increases in deposits. Bank of America is an example. Their, their cash went up something 20 or 30%. And so we're not talking about 20 or 30% on a billion dollars. We're talking about they're at $300 billion in cash. A lot of that coming from customer deposits and you know, their market caps about two to 300 billion. So it's just a crazy amount of capital that's flowing into these banks. And whether that's from stimulus checks, whether it's just the fact that people have not been spending, they have not been traveling. And there's a lot of fortunate people with good jobs who can work from home. And they're just having this money sit back. You look at the bank's balance sheets, credit card balances have been paid back quite a bit. 
And so the banks are in this interesting, this interesting turning point where last year you had the Fed basically say to these banks, okay, we have a, a potential huge crisis here. And so you guys need to make sure your balance sheets are stress tested and safe moving forward. Because the big fear was that we're going to have a lot of defaults on loans and everything. And so the Fed said to these banks, okay, you cannot raise a dividend and you can buy back shares. And so after doing another round of these stress tests, they've come back and said, by the end of June, you the banks that have passed, which is almost all of them, yep. um, can now do buybacks again. You can raise your dividend again. And so what these banks have, it, it's a dichotomy. And it's interesting because when you're on Wall Street, it's no new, no good news is ever good news. You could have these companies blowing out their earnings and their comps and they say, that's not going to be good because next year's comps are going to be rough. So what else do you want these companies to do? So for banks, they have this problem, I put this in quotes, that they have so much cash now on their balance sheet that they're struggling to loan them out. And so if you understand the way that banks work, they, they really don't have working capital. This cash and these deposits, that's their working capital. And so what they do is they pay interest on deposit that a customer brings in, and then they lend out that same dollar and they make money on the spread. And the, again, problem, quote unquote, with having so much cash is you're not really making as much of a spread as you would like. And because of that, you have this huge inflow of deposits and not as much demand and lending. They have a lot of dry powder to do what they want to do with it. And so what you're seeing, and particularly with some of the bigger banks, again, like Bank of America, JP Morgan, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, what they've done, even in this very low interest rate environment, is what you've seen is the trend is loans are down compared to deposits. And that's been that way for several years now. And so what that's going to do, that's going to push your spreads lower, which hurts the profitability for the banks because they're not making as high of an interest rate. But what you have is you have a, a double a double tailwind where if interest rates rise, like a lot of people are fearing, you'll start to see some of those, some of those spreads get higher as they uh, employ those funds. Secondly, what you've had is some of the banks like Bank of America in particular have actually been making pretty good spread just lending to the Fed. So they'll have the Fed funds rate and these banks will maintain their own kind of checking deposits with the Fed. And so if you look back over the last several years, companies like Bank of America have actually made a decent spread just having it sit in their Fed, their Federal Reserve account. And now they can ease into lending. And these banks have been able to have really strict underwriting to get really solid loans on their books. And it's a good situation as an investor, especially somebody who maybe is worried about the health when you go into something like a financial and we had this huge crisis a decade ago. And so it exposed a lot of the weaknesses, but you have a lot stronger loan books now from these banks having been so conservative that moving forward, there's a lot of ways that they can utilize some of that capital to, to bring higher margins, higher spreads on their loans in order to continue to have some growth. So what, what do you think the end game, like the normalized scenarios for the banks? It's going to be, it's going to be interesting because I think there's so much freedom and, and so many things that can go. Like, I think some banks are going to get a little more conservative, a little more greedy again. And so when I look at and it's tough because on the deposit side, you have a lot of innovation happening in the finance industry. You have all this FinTech mm -hmm. coming in. So you have, whether it's like Square or PayPal, who are basically taking a lot of 
merchant accounts and they're looking into dipping their toes into taking deposits. So you have pressure on that side and then you have pressure from like an online bank like Ally who's able to support more accounts without having these physical branches, which makes them able to have a little bit of operating efficiency. So on one end, you have some stress on the deposit side. On the other end, you have this kind of problem with if you're not able to make enough loans, eventually, maybe you start to loosen standards. And and we saw how that played out when you get too loose. I think depending on the bank, and then if you look at the smaller banks or regionals, a lot of them have been consolidating. Like there's just so much M&A there. And I don't know, like when I look at the banks, I, I try to look on the deposit side, where are the banks that still have some competitive advantages? And you'd be surprised some of the big money center banks, they still are able to attract deposits. Bank of America, Wells Fargo being two really good examples. Wells Fargo able to increase deposits, even though the Fed has put an asset cap to say, hey, because you guys had this scandal with the whole fake accounts thing several years back, we're not going to allow you to grow by a certain number, yet they're still bringing in deposits. While you have PayPal with Venmo and you have Square and, and all these other kind of new players, you still have a lot of money flowing into the banks, which gives them a lot of options as far as even they could put it into long-term securities. They've been doing that too. And so you can make maybe not as great of a spread as you want. You can still make different decent profits. And as more of that capital comes available, you have abilities to, to make higher interest loan, higher interest loans, but it's tough. It's tough to see, to say how it will play out. Cause I think some banks will get squeezed in the idea of the deposit side competition. So tough. The only way you can really continue to keep up with the pack is to raise the interest rates right. paid to customers. And so what you do there is now you're reducing your spread on the deposit side in order to make that up. You have to make riskier loans on the loan side somewhere in there. It's not sustainable. Yeah. So if you don't have that ability to continue on this trend over the long term, then you're going to have some issues. So where do you, as for investors, where do you think the most opportunity is? Do you think it's in these larger banks? Do you think it's in these microcap banks where that you think they're good like takeout targets? Do you think it's in the sales to ally financials of the world where there's a different, somewhat of a different business model? Where are you looking? Yeah, I've looked at all of it. And so I guess I'm, I'm really picky and I tend to, to stay on the more conservative side. One other factor that we didn't really touch on yet, and I'll try to do it without getting too into the weeds, but basically you have these requirements by the Fed that you need to have a certain capitalization as a bank. And so they have these tests. So not only are they stress testing, but they're also making sure there's enough equity essentially on the balance yeah. sheet. And so a lot of these banks, because again of the loan issue, which I put in quotes, they, ha- they have a lot of wiggle room as far as being able to lower some of that equity on the balance sheet. And so how do companies traditionally do that? Buybacks, dividends. And so I think a lot of the stock prices for a lot of these companies are going to do well either way, just from the stretching out and going back to more conservative standards. So if, if a tier one capital ratio, which is one of the regulatory ratios that the Fed uses to analyze these banks, a bank has one of 12, 12%, and they say 8% is adequate, the bank could go down 4%, and that's a huge amount of cash that they can just throw to a buyback and push their share price up. And I think a lot of them are just poised to have these huge this huge tailwind without even assuming interest rates go higher, just assuming that they stay the same. 
Because as the interest rates have gotten lower, that's been a really tough environment. So as you've seen them get pushed through this resilience, a lot of them have done well. I think it's obvious. I don't want to say it's obvious, but I think you can tell by looking at the financials, which ones have done better than others. And mm-hmm. so I, I just, I, based on the environment and the way it's going, I think the ones that have done well will continue to do well. I think the ones that will struggle will continue to struggle unless they can get bought out by a bigger bank. They, the, the shareholders might be in for a little bit of trouble, but on the big picture, I'm bullish on the industry in general. So Andrew, another question. So when you're looking at banks, what kind of metrics are you looking at? And how are you evaluating some of these businesses? I'd, I'd imagine you, you would have to care about the management a big deal because you know if you don't, if you have a crappy bank or a crappy management team, some of these loans can be somewhat of a black box. So how do you approach it? Yeah. So that's a great point with the loans, depending on which bank you're looking at, some of them have better disclosures than others. That's actually where I would start. Me being like a more conservative type of investor, the annual reports for these banks are just crazy intimidating. And I don't blame you if the first time you try to dive in, you say, wow, this is too overwhelming. If you look at a big globally GSIB, which is globally systemically important banks, again, JP Morgan, Citigroup, Wells, and Bank of America, you'll see that not only do they have these consumer banking parts of their business, but then they have the whole investment banking side, they have trading and they have, I'm blanking on on the other one, but basically there's all these different segments of the bank and you have to look at them differently. Just looking, maybe I would start because of that. Maybe I would start more on the regionals because those tend to be a lot simpler and you can look at them more as a traditional, okay, we take deposits, we make loans and, and it's real clean that way. Yeah. So what I would do if I was trying to dive into that industry and do some research, look at the part of the annual report, which shows their loan book. So a lot of times they will show, depending on the bank, what kind of credit quality are the different loans in our, on our book? What is the interest rate we're making on those? Where are we exposed either geographically or again, based on credit quality? And then from there, you can look, it's very balance sheet based. I, I know a lot of businesses today, we don't really look at the balance sheet too much. But when it comes to the bank, the price to book is still a huge metric for that. And it's because everything from their loan book to their securities, to the deposits, it's all on there. And so another part of the annual report to laser focus on is how, how have they allocated the capital based on how are they trying to make their interest? Because there's lots of ways you can make interest. You know, again, you you can make the loans, you could have funds with the Fed, like we mentioned, you could buy bonds, right? A lot of banks buy a ton of bonds and and just let those mature mortgage-backed securities. That's still a huge thing. So I would look through those and look at what are the interest rates we're having to pay on deposits? What are the interest rates we're earning on investments and loans and other things? And are there companies that look like they're better positioned than others? And that's where I would start because you would be surprised how different how differently the banks can look just on those simple things. Yeah. Interesting. Are there any, what would you say the, the out of the larger banks, what would you say the, or the have the best management team? I think you really can't go wrong with both Bank of America and um, JP Morgan. Both of those guys, Moyahan. Moyahan? Yeah, Brian Moyahan. Yeah, yeah. Moyahan and, and Jamie Dimon. They've been in the industry, both of them, for a very long time. They've been able to push these banks through and and whether it's making pretty good acquisitions or just keeping their bank really running efficiently and having good risk management. 
those are things that are super huge to, to have a successful bank and to have longevity with it. And Wells Fargo has some promise too. I don't know a lot about their CEO, but pe- a lot of people are optimistic that he'll be able to turn that ship around. And so it is an interesting time and we'll see what happens with Jamie Dimon and how he goes moving forward. He's been there for a long time. So I don't know if, if he's even thinking of succession plans or what, if I'm a shareholder in, in either of those JP Morgan or Bank of America, I'm probably feeling pretty good. Well, let me tell you an anecdote because I think this is actually, I don't know if it's important, but I feel like it's important. So banking is pretty, it's a pretty sticky business, right? If you open a checking account, you're not moving around every month to have marginally better rates somewhere else. Okay? We get that. However, I have, I think what might be underappreciated, right? Is that if one bank has superior customer service, let's say you have two accounts somewhere, three accounts somewhere, which over time people do. If there's one bank where you have a significantly better experience, you're going to over time put more deposits into that bank. And I think that is something worth looking at. And I don't know how to measure it, but I can tell you from a personal experience, right? So I have several accounts, right? I have my account with uh, Chase. I have a Chase account. I have an account with a credit union. And then I have a, an account with Wells Fargo. And my experience with Chase, it's not incrementally better. It is so vastly superior to Wells Fargo and credit union that my deposits now over time with Chase are 10 times higher than the other two. And it's so stupid because their higher level of customer service probably took on in, cumulatively over two, over the last two years, maybe an hour extra worth of time. Even just when... When COVID hit, they said, hey, I know you run a business. Do you need any help with loans? Let's see if we can give you some loan relief. I said, I don't need it, but I appreciate you calling. And when I when the banker asked me, what are your goals? And I said, I'm going to buy some real estate. Immediately, they connect me to real estate people. So it's like, Wells Fargo never did that. My credit union, they don't do you know investment real estate loans, but they could have done other stuff and never have. And I just have always been amazed. Like you could literally just call someone and it takes two minutes to just reach out to someone and say, Hey, how are everything? How's your experience with us? Is there anything we can do for you? Little thing like that goes such a long way. And the fact that seems to be a thing with Chase, I think is a huge deal. And you mentioned it's anecdotal, but if you dive into the numbers, I think you'll see, we mentioned management and that's a perfect way to give some backdrop into that. And if you look at the way that they've been able to keep deposits and keep those interest rates that they pay on those deposits low. There's a reason they're able to do that. It's because again, like you said, they have that customer service. And uh, something my co-host Dave says is says a lot of times you'll have people who have longer relationships with their banks than they do with their significant others. Yeah, And it's so true, but to your point, they have to have the customer service to be able to back that up. And you mentioned the best leaders and the Bank of America and the JP Morgan Chase, those two by far have some of the best advantages on the deposit side. And I think that just gives them so much more leverage over their competitors when it comes to running the entire thing. Yeah, really interesting. Andrew, it was a pleasure to have you on. Always interesting uh, as always. And I'll see you again soon. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So, in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.